Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for just everything about you, um, your perfect character, your, your unfailing love for us. Thank you that you truly are the author of salvation, that, that your love is so much, your grace is so much, that just as that song said, who can comprehend it? Father, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for reaching down when, when we could do nothing and you saved and you, you, you provide salvation. Father, just thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we get to come and we get to look at your word. We get to, to just see how gracious you are. Father, open our eyes to be able to see this. Open our hearts to just be changed by, by your word, by, um, by your Holy Spirit. Father, make this time about you if there's any temptation for us to, to look at ourselves or to look at the things we're doing, Father. Just, just take it all and for your glory. Take it all because it's all for you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Then in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to share something I learned this week. I learned never to include something in a sermon that you're afraid of. So last week I talked about the, the fear of holding newborn babies, how babies that don't hold on, babies that just kind of rely on you because they can't hold on, they're dependent on you. And Tuesday afternoon we get a text that says, hey, can you take care of a six-month-old baby for a couple days? I should have expected this. I don't know why I didn't expect this, but everything went well. The baby, um, maybe I learned some self-confidence in here. The baby never was dropped. Everything was good. Um, but I just wanted to share that I'm going to have to be careful with what I include in sermons and what I'm afraid about. But also, I learned something else, that I have an absolutely wonderful wife that I don't think I'm thankful enough for. Um, just so She was amazing, um, and it was only two days. Um, but she was amazing. Make sure she knows I said that. Last week, one of the things I mentioned was last week was really part one of two parts. Really, how we, we could have done a more big picture last week and done the verses we went through last week in Matthew 19. We could have included this week because they really go together. Um, it's the same, same big idea. Um, so before we really get into this morning's text, starting in Matthew 19, um, we're going to start in verse 23, uh, if you want to go ahead and flip there. But I just want to recap last week and, and what we talked about last week. We saw that a rich young man had, had come to Jesus and said, what good deed must I do? What can I do to, to earn this eternal life? Uh, we, we, we saw how this was very contrary to the gospel, that this is absolutely not the gospel. It says, I'm going to work towards this. I'm going to do something to deserve this. I'm going to somehow earn this, how, how that's not the gospel. The, the gospel says that Jesus has already done. He's done everything that had to be, do, had to be done. There's no le- checkbox left to be checked. Um, there's nothing that we add to the gospel. But then Jesus, we saw, he actually went further than this. He went straight to the man's sin. Jesus, knowing the man's heart, knowing um, his treasure, knowing what he was holding on to so tightly in his life of his possessions, his wealth. And we saw that Jesus said, that's not going to work. You can't 
have this treasure and hold on to it and be unwilling to let it go to follow me. And we say that that's something like Jesus is better than anything that we can hold on to, anything that we can hope in, that we can try to grasp in this life. But that ultimately, for us to do either one of those, to truly understand grace, for us to understand the gospel, it's just as if we were children, totally dependent on Jesus. We said last week, an infant, those babies that I'm kind of scared to hold still, they're not holding on to Jesus. Jesus, in the, in the picture we saw in the verses, they were bringing their kids to Jesus. And Jesus is holding on to them because they're dependent. And it's this last point that we are dependent on grace, that we are dependent on, completely dependent on the mercy of God, the grace of God. It's, it's that where we pick up this week because we see that after this man walks away sorrowful because he was unwilling to let go, we see that he, the, the man walks away and then Jesus turns to address his disciples. So I'm going to read Matthew 19. We're just going to do 23 through 26 at first. We're going to do a lot more than that, but we're going to start in just 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciple heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So for the first time on Easter, actually, I decided that I was going to actually make points and put them up on a screen. I had never done that before, and I did that, and I, some people said, hey, that was really helpful. So I'm going to try that again this week. They're actually up here. If you want to go ahead and, I don't know if I'm going to do this every week, but I'm going to try it again. We see that salvation is impossible with man. We're going to see that rewards are not the goal. Rewards are not the motivation. We haven't actually read those verses yet. But then we're going to see that also salvation is completely defined by God, that he's the one calling the shots, that this is it's all because of grace. It's all because of God. So I'm going to get those out there so you know those are there. So as we go through, we're going to see those things. I'm experimenting a little bit. A lot has been talked about and a lot has been argued and debated about whether or not Jesus is actually talking about a real needle, a real camel, um, what this is actually referring to. I've heard various preachers, various scholars say that the eye of the needle that he's talking about is actually some gate in the hole of a wall in Jerusalem and that camels would have to be unpacked and go through their knees and go through this hole. It makes for a really cool history lesson and a really cool sermon analogy, but I don't think it's true. I don't think that's at all what he's talking about, and we're going to see why as we go through. Because, I don't want to ruin my, my upcoming point, but we're going to see, that's, that's not what he's talking about. This, was, this idea was kind of formulated during the time of, for church history buffs that love church history, like Tanner here, Jerome, when everything was and the Bible was read as an allegory, or an allegory, sorry. Um, the allegorical method that would say that if the Bible says needle, it can't mean a needle. If the Bible's talking about blood, there's some deeper meaning we've got to get to. As they were reading the text, there was always something more, always something deeper below the surface they would dig, dig, dig to try to, try to get to. And that would cause people to pull out some really crazy things out of Scripture, to pull out some things that were way off base, um, but I think Jesus is talking about a needle. 
that you sew with. He's talking about a camel that's not going to go through the eye of a needle. And, he, and he, does, he does start speaking about wealth. He talks about the dangers of wealth. For this man, the wealth was where his heart was. But he's not saying that you can't be wealthy and enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that if you're wealthy, you can't be saved. We see many, all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, examples of rich people who are saved. People that are very wealthy who are saved. I mean, Old Testament, you look at Abraham, you look at David, Solomon, Jacob, Joseph after his nice promotion in Egypt. You see all these things, people that are very wealthy. In the New Testament, there's people who are wealthy. Zacchaeus was very wealthy and was saved by God. His, his hold on wealth, his view on that changed, but he was still wealthy. So it's not that you can't be wealthy and be saved. That's not at all the point. What we see is that this kind of teaching, that the thing you look at the Old Testament, seeing people who are wealthy, this had led everyone to kind of believe that wealth was a sign of you would, you, would, you would receive favor from God. That God obviously favored you because you were wealthy. You had done something that you had great faith. There was some reason that you had been given this possession. So wealth was seen as a very good thing. And this comment would lead to a really good question from the disciples. Because we saw, and especially in Matthew 5, like all the way going through, Jesus continues to kind of correct their interpretation of the Old Testament. He continued to correct their, old, their beliefs. Matthew 5, Jesus was saying, hey, you've heard it said this, but I'm saying this. He was, he was correcting their views, their interpretation of the Scripture. And again, like I just said, this led to a very good question. The disciples get it. There is no way a camel is going through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. And listen to their question. This is in verse 25. It says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Finally, they seemed to ask a really good question. They seemed to say, Wait, if you're saying that, that's impossible. Who then can be saved? They know that a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. It's not just difficult. It's not just difficult, but it's impossible. But then what does Jesus say? What is his response? He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, the disciples, in their question, they're, they're not just talking about the rich man. Because they, they, they just heard what Jesus said. And now they're saying, wait, if that's what you're saying, who can be saved? They're opening it up to everyone. Who then can be saved? With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, it's not just talking about wealthy people here. Because the wealthy man that, that came to Jesus we saw last week had the same problem that each and every one of us have. Each one of the disciples had, he has a heart problem. He's got a, a heart that is, that is tainted by sin, that is so in sin that it's longing for everything in the world, everything other than what it was created to long for, which is God. It's not just a money problem. For him, it exhibited itself in money. It exhibited itself in wealth. But it's not just a money problem. I feel 100% confident in saying this. But I know that each and every one of us don't agree 100% about the tiny bits and th things of theology. 
There's things that are debatable. There's things that we talk about that are like, I don't know where we're at here. But there are some things that we have to agree on. There's some things that we've got to agree on if we're going to be preaching the same Jesus, if we're going to be preaching the same gospel. With man, salvation is impossible. With God, it is possible. We've got to agree on that. We've got to be there. There's no wavering. There's nothing. We've got to agree with that. Because here's the thing. If, we, if we're left up to ourselves, if we're left up to us, we're going to be the rich young ruler, rich young man every single time. Every single time. We've said this. We talked about 1 Corinthians 2. That the natural man does not understand the things of God. Without God opening our eyes, without us being um, taught through the Holy Spirit, like we're not going to understand. We're not going to get this. We're going to be after the world every single time because that's what our hearts want. The Bible would say we were dead and we've been made alive through Jesus, through his sacrifice, through his blood. We've been washed. We've, been, we've had our eyes opened because with God, it's possible. With God, salvation is possible. With man, it's impossible. It's not us. It can't be. Because with man, it is impossible. I'm going to say this quite a few times today. But with God, all things are possible. Like, this is a foundational truth that we have to be on board with. We've got to be in agreement on. That's what Jesus says. He's not just talking about wealthy people. He's talking about people who are in their sin. People who desperately need to be saved. But it's only God that can do it. We're going to see in a, in a parable in a couple minutes that Jesus is going to be very clear God's the one working salvation. He's the one giving. He's the one providing the grace. It's all him. But then we see that he, he often, he always works in ways that are so outside of what we would expect, what we would believe, what we would do if we were God. He continually works in ways that are completely mind-blowing. Go ahead and flip over to 1 Corinthians just for a second. If you've got your Bible, please pull over to 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going to be in chapter 1. I've learned not to mark it in my Bible, so it takes me a second and I don't rush through this. 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to do 26 through 29. Because we're going to see that God works in ways that are different than we would expect. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Basically, God's going to work in ways that bring himself the most praise. He's going to work in ways that we can't boast that salvation is ours. We can't boast that anything we're doing is ours because he's choosing what is foolish. He's choosing what is weak. This is one of the few times. Like, I don't mind being called foolish in this regard. Honestly, I, I hope that I'm called foolish in this regard because it says that's what God has chosen. In this whole mindset, the foolish, the, the low, the despised, this, this really kind of defined the disciples. They were a hodgepodge group of guys, tax collectors, 
smelly fishermen. We're going to see next week their group of mama's boys. These guys had some major flaws that, would, that continually rose to the surface. And we see that often through Peter's words, but it kind of demonstrates the whole group. But it's not who we would have chosen as a leadership team. It's not the, who the world would have chosen as their leaders by worldly standards. So, so after Jesus has the teaching, he says, with man it's impossible, with God it's possible. Let's go on to Matthew, we're still in Matthew 19, 27 through 29. This is Peter responding. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The disciples had just asked this wonderful question. Um, this, this question that Jesus responds with one of the most simple yet profound claims in all the Bible, that salvation is only possible with God. And then Peter talks. Which is usually, not, not usually, often a scary thing. Basically he says, Peter's saying, we, the, me, the, the other 11, we've given up much. We've sacrificed much in this world to follow you. We're, we're not that rich young man. We're not that guy that just turned away sorrowful. What, what are we going to get? What do we have? And Jesus actually affirms this. He says, yeah. He says, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a lot of thought, a lot of speculation, a lot of ideas on what Jesus is exactly talking about here. I wrestled with this for a while this week. I was like, what, is, what, what in the world's going on here? What is he promising these guys as their reward? I don't know. Um, sorry. I think that usually I've learned that when I struggle with something, just read it literally. What is he saying? He says, sit on, they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Will they be judging the tribes of Israel for their rejection as Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah? Maybe. But I don't, I don't think, I don't want to hinge there because I don't think that's the biggest teaching here. That's not the biggest thing that I want to emphasize, that I think the Bible is emphasizing here, that Jesus is emphasizing. You see, because Jesus has opened it up to everyone. He says that everyone who's left, father or mother or house or land, all these things, everyone will receive a hundredfold. Everyone will receive this eternal life. And if you're truly following Jesus, I would say that he's talking about you there because you've left something. You've left something. You've let go of something to follow Jesus. And if you haven't, I don't know that you're following Jesus. Um, but you see, Peter's question wasn't necessarily wrong. But I think it shows that where his motivation, where, where, where the heart of what, where, what he was looking for this question was like, Jesus, we followed you. We followed you from the very beginning. We've sacrificed the most. We've, we've always been there. We're going to be with you always. What do, what do we get? 
And then Jesus, not, it's not quite a get behind me Satan type of rebuke, but look at this verse 30. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and those that are last will be first. Because it's not about the reward. It's not, that's not, that's not, we're not chasing this, this gift. They're trying to get more than that, more than someone else. We're not after it for that reason. And we're, 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 we'll see this in a second. Let's go ahead and read the parable. Jesus follows it up with a parable. With verse 20, um, we're going to read 1 through 16. This is the same thought. Jesus is still teaching the same thing here. 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in that marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. We're going to see that salvation is defined by God. That he is the, the master of the house. That he does what he chooses. But I want to make sure we read this parable within the context. Specifically within the context of Peter's question and then of Jesus' response. Because Jesus says, many who are first will be last. And the last first. So what in the world happens here? Basically, a master of the house goes out to find people to work in his vineyard. The work day, this is all stuff I've... Um, found out this week or read and studied. The work, the work day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. He's gone out about 6 a.m. and found workers in his vineyard. He's gone out and he, he, first he agreed to work for, he agreed to pay them a denarius for their work for the day. Um, this was based off of the average price for a worker. It was based off of um, the average price for a Roman soldier. These workers, it was the custom for sons especially, to be taught the trade of their fathers. They would basically take over the family business as they grew up. Jesus, we saw, was trained as a carpenter. Um, but this, this was custom. So these that are in the marketplace looking for work, for some reason were not taught the trade of their fathers. They're not 
taught the, the prestigious trade, whatever that be, of their fathers. And usually these were the, the lower class. These were those that couldn't find work anywhere else, so they went to the marketplace hoping that someone would hire them. And so as they're told, hey, I'm going to earn a denarius per day, they're excited. They, they would have been more than satisfied with this price. They would have been more than willing to work for that because that's more than they've probably made most days. It are these workers that God commands in Deuteronomy 24 that it says you shall pay them their wage every day. They depend on that. Um, they, like, they're making just enough money to provide for their families for the next day. It's a day-by-day thing. So these aren't the best workers he could ever find, but these are ones... Foolish, maybe? Low? Weak? I don't know if you want to look at it in terms of 1 Corinthians. But they go out. They agree to work for this price. Then Jesus, then the, the, the master of the house goes out at 9 a.m., at 12 p.m., at 3 p.m., and hires more workers. And we see that he goes out also at 5 p.m., the 11th hour of the workday, and hires more workers. And then he calls the foreman and says, I'm going to go ahead and pay these guys, pay those guys I hired last, pay them first, and he gives them a denarius. And if you're the guys that are hired first, you're thinking, I'm getting 12 times that, I'm getting a lot more than that. But you see that their response to also receiving a denarius was, they weren't still excited about that price they had agreed to work for. And it says they went away grumbling. And I think it's safe to say, I mean, I won't say that. I would have been upset by this. It would have bothered me. That, that goes everything against, that goes all the way against everything we've learned about fairness, about job and equality and fair labor and all, and all those kind of things. But what is the meaning of this passage? What is the meaning of this parable specifically? What is he, what is he teaching Peter? What is he teaching these disciples that had just asked them about their reward? Because Peter just asked, isn't there, there's got to be us who have sacrificed much. There's got to be something for us. But in this parable, those hired first and those hired last both received the same thing. I said they're, they're no, they were no longer satisfied with their price, their wage, their denarius. That once they saw that those people who they deemed as not deserving the full day's work, that, that price, they, they said, oh, they, they don't deserve that. They haven't worked long enough for that. They were no longer satisfied with what they'd been given. And they couldn't get their eyes off of themselves. So, so let's step out of the parable for a second. You see, I mean, you could go through, and this is this, and this is really that. But master of the house, God... The workers, those that he's calling to himself, those that, that Jesus is saving. And if you look at it this way, the disciples were the 6 a.m. workers. He, they're, they're the ones that he has called first. He said, come and follow me. And they've sacrificed much, and they would continue to sacrifice much, most of them up until the sacrifice in their lives. But he's saying that even those I call later, even the thief on the cross that was saved possibly moments before he died, that he also received this glorious eternal life, this, this life spent with God. What does this make you think about the fairness or the justice of God? 
Do, like, do you rejoice when do you see someone who you didn't think would be saved and all of a sudden you hear they're saved? Do you, do you rejoice when you see a wicked person saved? Or someone who has rejected Christ their whole life and then decides on their deathbed that they trust Jesus? How does that make you feel? Just think about that just for a second. Because I think that this is hard. Let me give you an example. This, all this happened in the early 1990s. Um, some of you are going to remember those years more than others. I'm purposely going to stare at my notes and not look up straight ahead. Um, I didn't say it. Um, 1991. Some people know the name Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. If you would have told me that name, I would have said, I think he's a bad guy, right? Like, that, I, did not, I didn't know everything. For those of you, Nick's given, like, I don't know who that is. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, convicted in 1991 for raping, murdering, mutilating 17 men and boys between the years of 1978 and 1991. There's a lot more details we could go into, a lot more awful ways we could describe what happened for the sake of time, for the sake of... Other people, I'm not going to. He was sentenced to 16 years, 16 life sentences. Many people would say that he deserved much more than that. In 1994, a pastor by the name of Roy Ratcliffe was called to, to the prison to do a baptism. When he got to the prison, he found out that the person he was going to be baptizing was Jeffrey Dahmer. There, there, there's many interviews that have gone on between Roy Ratcliffe and um, the media, the church. Um, a lot has gone on there. And one thing that he continued to say was that every time someone asked the question, and said, did, did, did he really understand the gospel? Did he really repent? Did, did he really understand this? Why did you baptize him? Like, that wasn't legit. Every time people asked this question, they asked if he was sincere. They said, surely this man could not have repented. Surely this man, look at what he did. This is actually a quote from Roy Ratcliffe, the pastor. He says, the questioner always seemed to hope I'd answer, no, he wasn't sincere. The questioner seemed to be looking for a way to reject Jeffrey as a brother in Christ instead of seeing him as a sinner who had been saved by God. Was Jeffrey Dahmer saved? God knows. The pastor totally believed he was. We don't have his life after this to go off of. To, all we know is what he's done before that. All we know is his crime. All we know is his murder, his rape, his sin. That's all we know. He was actually beaten to death in a jail later on in 1994. Um, but still, even that, what makes us any uneasy about that is his crime before Jesus. His, his, his sin. That's all we know. That's what makes us feel uneasy. Because surely, 
if we've really been following Jesus, if we've given much to follow Jesus, he didn't give much. It makes us feel uneasy. It makes me feel uneasy. But here's the thing. If, if Jeffrey Dahmer trusted in Christ for salvation, if he trusted in that, that he receives the same eternal life, the same salvation that we are offered, that, that we receive if we're saved. Think about that. Like, it doesn't matter if we're saved at the age of 10. Sacrifice much. Forsake worldly pleasures. All these things. Praise God for that. Praise God that he has saved you from going through a lot, from sinning more and more and more. That's grace that he's given you to follow him longer. But if you also look at it, Jeffrey Dahmer spent most of his life killing, raping, doing lots of awful things. He, for him to be saved, if he was saved, he's trusting in the exact same blood of Jesus that we trust in. This continually defies our human logic and if we're relying on logic to understand grace, if we're relying on logic to understand how God works, we're going to be frustrated for the, our entire lives. Who can comprehend? That song said, who can comprehend the love of God? Who can comprehend his grace? Because if grace, if salvation is defined by our sin, no matter how awful it is, if grace is defined by that, it's not grace. If grace is defined by the severity of our sin, if someone can't receive salvation because of how bad their sin was, then that's not grace. Like, God is going to save people when he wants to save people. Some are saved early, some are saved late. But if God defines salvation, if this is his, if this is what he's doing... then that's what we trust. Like, the, the, the point of this is that each reward, each person that is saved, is solely because of the sovereign grace of God, that he's the one granting grace. He's the one giving grace, whether we personally think people deserve it or not. Like, we all trust Jesus. We all trust his grace. Like, what, what is your response to this? What, what is your response to... Hearing this, like, do you rejoice over hearing? Do you rejoice over the fact that a wicked man would trust Jesus, that Jesus would save someone at their worst? Do you find yourself rejoicing in this, or is it, oh, man, I don't know if he was saved. I don't know if God could really save that person. Because those are the people that were grumbling against the master, saying, but, but, but wait, we've done more. And if you've been saved, if you are trusting in Jesus, if your heart is, is truly after Jesus, been changed by him, then we rejoice because you, we, we've been given the best gift that is to be given. That we get Jesus. We live eternally with him. We get to follow after him. 
That is every reason to rejoice. Because without Jesus, without his grace given to us, we are no different. We were, had the same sin problem, the same heart problem as the, the rich man. We have the same problem, the same heart problem as Jeffrey Dahmer. We have the same heart problem as every other person who's walked this earth other than Jesus. Because without God, without the grace that he gives, without him saying, I'm going to save you, zero hope, zero chance. That goes for everyone. Because with man, salvation is impossible. But with God, it is possible. Like, this parable is really the epitome of scandalous grace. Grace that doesn't make sense to us. Grace that says, God, why would you save us? Why would you do that for us who don't deserve it? Grace doesn't fit into our human logic. Grace doesn't fit into our human logic. For us that have been saved, reading this, like there's only thanksgiving. It's only giving glory to God that for some reason he saw fit to give us grace when we didn't deserve it. Like all we deserved is death because of our sin. But without him, if you want to think about it in terms of the parable, saying, come be a worker in my vineyard. Without that, we've got nothing. Like We're thankful. We're thankful that overjoyed. They don't understand the grace that he's given us. But I think this also gives us hope in evangelism because we know that God is going to save people. Like, that is hope we have. God is going to save people. Our words are not going to save people. The gospel saves people. The gospel is the hope for salvation. The gospel is what saves. And then God is going to save people that so don't deserve it because he's already done it with you if you're saved. Think, you think Paul in the Old, Te- or Old Testament, Paul in the New Testament, most people didn't think he was going to be saved and didn't believe it when they heard it. But this hope that God is going to save people is why we preach the gospel to children because children are going to, God is going to save children. This is why we preach the gospel to teenagers because God is going to save teenagers. Because God, we preach because God's going to save people. He's going to save adults, He's going to save elderly, He's going to save all those in between. Like God says to you, we don't. This is why we preach the gospel to drug dealers. We, teach the, we preach the gospel to pimps, to prostitutes, to adulterers, to rapists, to murderers, to cheaters, to liars, to those addicted to pornography, to greedy people, to people who steal. Is there anyone I didn't get yet? Like, no one is outside the scope of the gospel. And this goes for us, this goes for every single person in here. 
And this, this should give us boldness in sharing the gospel. It gives us boldness to know that God is going to save people. He might go out at, 11, at 5 p.m., the 11th hour, and save someone. And we should praise God because of that, that he's given another sinner grace. That same grace that we didn't deserve. Like, if I was God, I would not have saved me. Because of my sin, I, I wouldn't have saved me. I probably wouldn't have saved you. And it's a good thing I'm not God because grace, we don't comprehend it. Grace, we don't earn. Grace, we don't deserve. And yet God graciously gives us grace. Verse 15 in Matthew 20 says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? God is the giver of grace. He is the one that defines salvation. He is the one that says, this is my grace. And, and we're thankful. If, he, if we understand this, if we get this, if that's the only way we're saved is through this grace. And I, I just, just think about that. Like, Are you thankful for grace that he gave you grace? Do you understand that? Do you realize how much you've been saved from? Do you realize what your sin is? Like our only response to this is thankfulness and going and telling people about this same grace because that's their only hope. That's our only hope. No matter how bad we may think someone is, they're not outside the scope of the gospel. Let's pray.